Hello, everyone. This is Ricky, and welcome back to another episode of Gore Matters. Um, we are so excited for this episode because we are going to provide an introduction to ecofeminism. Hi, everyone. This is Charmaine. Like Ricky said, we're discussing ecofeminism today, and this connects to one of our goals at Gray Matters to kind of make complex theory accessible. Ecofeminism is a um, field that's gained and kind of garnered more interest. And so it's like a theory and a whole field. So we're going to delve into that a little bit. Um, ecofeminist theory originally emerged as a method to address issues that were underrepresented or unaddressed by mainstream feminist movements. And as a likely result, ecofeminism is subject to misunderstandings, which we'll go into a little bit more of kind of what those misunderstandings are or misinterpretations, you could say. Um, like many other fields and theories, you're going to have a lot of different viewpoints and you're going to have um, different perspectives, especially with this kind of like reemergence and reinterest in a lot of feminist studies, a lot of feminist um, literature and theories um, and going into different topics, you're going to have a lot of different interpretations. And with that, there's going to be some misunderstanding. So we'll delve, in, delve into a little bit more of what ecofeminist theory, its origins, kind of what it, it stands for, what it's doing today and some of its... Um, some of its progression. Yeah, yeah. So um, to start off, um, just to give like a little historical insight, ecofeminism is a new term for an ancient wisdom. It grew out of various social movements, the feminist movement, which we talked about in a previous episode. In season one, we give kind of like a whole breakdown of the different ways of feminism. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about feminism and what that means, I highly recommend listening to that episode because we kind of break it down. Um, but also it came out of the social movement for peace and ecological movements as well. And in the late 1970s and early 1980s, it became popular in the context of numerous protests and activities against environmental destruction and sparked off initially by reoccurring ecological disasters. Um, and so it's really kind of a mixture of all of these different social movements. I, I like to say that these social movements, it's kind of like they have conversations with each other, like fem feminism, ecology, peace, like it's all about these movements, like I said before, having conversations and, and seeing the kind of um, web of intersecting ideologies and beliefs that evolved into ecofeminism. Yeah, that's really beautifully stated, Ricky. Like it's ecofeminism, like a lot of the other theories that we discuss on the podcast, because we want to kind of, it's, it, this is a part of our series where we go into like feminist theories, feminist and womanist theories. And this kind of, um, like you said, there's like a web of intersection, intersecting like ideologies and frameworks that this connects to. Um, so French feminist author and civil rights activist, and I'm going to butcher her name because I'm very remedial in French, but it is, I believe, Francoise de Bon coined the term ecofeminism as we know it today in her 1974 publication of Feminism or Death. I'm not even going to try to say that in French. Um, 
to, but we'll she, write it out for you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We will definitely link this in um, our resources page. So you will have full access to her name um, and you will know exactly who we're talking about and her, her work, um, her 1974 publication, but the English translation is feminism or death. And she talks about this, talks about ecofeminism to describe feminist efforts and attitudes towards environmental practices. So it's really, she felt the need to kind of introduce this. This was 1974, right in the kind of crux of the second wave feminist movement. So she brought brought the term forward to talk about these issues. Um, the environmental and safety portal explained that in her book, Debon argues that many parallels exist between the patriarchal suppression of women and the suppression of nature. And this suppression results in environmental destruction. Since then, numerous theoretical and practical additions to Debon's arguments have been made. Many begin by collapsing patriarchal dualisms, male, female, nature, culture, and mind, body, but become fundamentally challenge, uh, but they, they come together to fundamentally challenge dominant epistemologies that inherently and efficiently vary other standpoints and ways of knowing. So issues such as the expo exploitation of nature by industrial resources, consumption, and Western paradigms of progress and technology have been explicitly designated as eco-feminist concerns. So this is something that has a broad reaching global impact. Um, one of the problematic things that we'll go into a little bit is that, um, some schools of thought and also some misinterpretations believe that um, Western and partly because of Dubon's um, kind of coining of the term or use of the term ecofeminism that, you know, a lot of ecofeminist practices are led by Western nations. But this is definitely something that, um, as we'll discuss later, too, like I said, have broad reaching global impacts. And so they have broad reaching and global um, activisms and women who are coming and a lot of different like factions of ideologies that are stemming from ecofeminism and its progression. Um, so it's definitely not something that is just um, like a Western centric um, ideology or practice. Um, but furthermore, the ecofeminist movement, it strives for anti-oppression practices, meaning a society free of hierarchy um, in which all living beings interact equally and are treated as part of a common organism, the earth. So that is like a main um, framework and uh, central theme that it goes back to, I shouldn't say framework, but a central theme it goes back to is that um, there is this sense of equity and um, complete dismantling of hierarchy, which is also a, a major feminist tenet as well, or tenet of feminism. Um, but in here, all living beings, it goes beyond just humans or male or female or non-binary bodies, but they all interact equally and they're treated um, as part of a common organism, the earth. So the earth also has massive... Um, I don't want to say like a personification, but the earth is like personified to a certain extent as far as like garnering and, and working towards equity is concerned. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like as we're having this conversation, I think a lot back to our spiritual activism class and how we really, um, that class really gives insight to, or it gives, I guess it gave us all insight into thinking of the world as more than just our individual, like everyday like us and thinking mm -hmm. of the world as like a global force and like we they it's a book and I'll link it on our resources page if you're interested it's it's a cute book it's like pictures and it's really cool it's an illustrated book about how becoming one with the universe almost and I kind of like see echoes of ecofeminism within that statement itself um, and another text that we will link on our resources page is a text titled Ecofeminism by Carol J. Adams and Lori Gurin. And they purport that ecofeminism addresses the various ways that sexism, 
heteronormativity and racism, colonialism, and ableism are informed by and support speciesism and how analyzing the ways these forces intersect can produce less violent, more just practices. And Adams and Grin note the intersectional forces that produce issues of oppression against marginalized groups, such as women and the environment to exist in hetero, heteropatriarchal hierarchies. Uh, I know we said a lot of kind of like, uh, I like to call them like scholastic words, words there, but it's basically like intersectionality is another topic that we will discuss further so that we have some grounding foundational resources and tools to better understand intersectionality. But I think intersectionality is basically looking at how all of these, I like to call them isms, kind of can intersect in different parts of our lives. And I think ecofeminism looks at the conversations that these isms also have in our larger global society. For example, like what conversation does sexism and colonialism have with speciesism to where we think as a species, we are like higher and more above and, and ecofeminism challenges that and kind of like Charmaine said before, creates this um, kind of need or this push for spe special equality or equity. Yeah. And there's a few basic tenets of ecofeminism that we'll go into. So the first one is connecting mistreatment and consumption of animals to oppression and objectif objectification of women. This connects directly to um, kind of Western neoliberal food practices, ideologies, um, the way that women are seen and their place in society. So this has broad re reaching implications beyond just the food we consume. Um, it's connected a lot to consumerism in general. So um, advertising media, the way women are represented, the role of women in the house and in the workplace, et cetera. Um, second one, it is cooperation, not competition. So this goes across all fronts. And so it's like cooperation amongst one another, amongst the amongst people as well. So it's not just something that women are working at, you know, it's something that there's a lot of different branches of ecofeminism. I won't get into it. Cause like Ricky said, they, it's like a lot of scholastic jargon and academic jargon that may get mm -hmm. kind of lost in the conversation. Um, but basically it's like working away from androcentrism, which is like this male rooted male centric um, framework that largely our society functions on globally um, and working towards cooperation amongst all, all beings essentially. Um, and then lastly, it's uprooting patriarchy. Patriarchy is rooted in like patriarchy is basically what, like what is connected to hierarchy. Um, the hierarchy that we have globally in, in cultures and societies um, is based in and, and reproduces heteronormative patriarchy. So that's something that's really important in order to kind of accomplish some of these other goals. Um, uprooting patriarchy is a major, major tenet um, of that in order to accomplish those goals. Yeah, yeah. And I, I loved how you kind of like broke it down to the three basic tenets. Uh, I think it makes it really more tangible and helps people understand the conversations about ecofeminism. I think one of the other conversations, so now we're going to kind of like talk into or discuss the kind of, I guess you can call them branches or like extending conversations surrounding ecofeminism. And one of the extensions um, that i I thought was interesting was food justice. I It was my first year in our master's program at TWU um, and I took a food justice course and 
I took this course not really knowing what food justice was, to be honest. I, I was like, oh, food justice? What is that? Like, just to, like fighting for food? I don't know. I was just really interested. And I think this course really helped me understand um, just how how our society values and 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 devalues um, food and devalues the environment and devalues so many aspects of our global interconnectivity with the rest of the world world and nature it's devalued to a point to where we don't even recognize how much we depend on nature and i think that that was the big kind of like the big theme of the class that i personally took away and just to be more mindful of my positionality within the global context of nature and people itself um and one of the books that we read in that class is called Cultivating Food, Ju Food Justice. Like we said, we will list these on our resources page. Um, we list all of the books and resources um, there for you to have access to. And the authors define food justice as um, food justice activists demonstrate the institutional racism that, that in its intersections with economic inequality has stripped communities of colors of their local food sovereignty, preventing many of them from eating in the way that food movement describes as quote unquote proper. Um, and they continue to say, perhaps a place to start would be for us whites to state how much we do not know to open up the space that might allow for others to define the spaces and projects that will help spurn the transformation to a more just and ecological way of providing food. And to kind of sum that up, food justice is about looking at our society. Um, we're gonna focus on the US because that's where Charmaine and I, that's where we are. Um, and really looking at people's access to food and um, not just the access, but also looking at, it's kind of a lot of different things, a lot of different conversations surrounding food. It looks at people's access to food, access to nutritional food, and it explores the location and the gravity, uh, I guess the, the impacts of food deserts. A food desert is a community that doesn't have access to a supermarket and the closest thing they can get to a supermarket is like a convenience store or even a liquor store. So that's kind of what a food desert is. It also looks at how, um, how the people that provide us food such as farmers and, and um, workers are also devalued as well, whether they're not getting paid adequately or whether they're, there are some forms of like worker employee abuse. Um, so it's kind of how all of these um, topics go in conversation with each other and really looking at, because I feel like in our society, we don't value food as much as we should. It's kind mm -hmm. of like, we're just like, oh, I'm just gonna eat. But we don't think about where our food comes from. We don't think about the workers. We don't think about the farmers. We don't think about how capitalized our farming industry is. And it's not just like our local farmer anymore. It's some big business that owns the farm as well. And it's not adequately like paying the workers too. Um, but we also don't think about that not everyone has access to food and not everyone has access to um, 
like healthy nourishing. food. Yeah, yeah, nourishment. Yeah, nourishing is great. Yeah, yeah nourishment um, and, and food that is going to help them live a um, a healthy, well life. And healthy not in the terms of diet and not in the terms of like, you know, just a whole, I should say holistic, a holistic life. And I think food justice puts that conversation on the table within ecofeminism. So as ecofeminism looks at like the conversation as a whole, food justice specifically focuses on the value that we place on food. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think um, a lot, there's a lot of different books, which I will list on the website, list on our website again. But one of the books that really stood out to me when I was taking this class is there's a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, and we study Thich Nhat Hanh a lot in our spiritual activism class. And it's very much into, um, into mindfulness, but not mindfulness um, that is like that trendy, like, I don't know, where you disconnect from everything, but mindfulness that involves connecting and, and deep thinking. And Thich Nhat Hanh has a book called How to Eat. Now, when we were given this book in class, I was like, how to eat? This man's going to tell me like how to eat, like, like, like I'm a child. Um, but the book is more so like, I would, I would say the subtitle for me for this book is how to value and be more mindful of the food that I eat. And one of the quotes Thich Nhat Hanh has in this book is, when we slow down and really enjoy our food, our life takes on a much deeper quality. And he says, I love to sit and eat quietly and enjoy each bite, aware of the presence of my community, aware of all the hard and loving work that has gone into food. When I eat in this way, not only am I physically nourished, I'm also spiritually nourished. The way I eat influence everything else that I do during the day. And I've just found that these words were so powerful because it also goes into another conversation about the cultural um, value of food and someone preparing you food and mm-hmm. this and how like our westernized society kind of like shies away from that or kind of has devalued that notion of like um, like a loved one preparing you a meal or the artistry or the love that goes to that and there's another book um, that also talks about the culture of the food and it's it's a book called um eating the landscape by salmon and this book really discusses like the historical relationship of indigenous um societies and their relationship with food and how food wasn't just oh i gotta eat this in 10 minutes and move on like the preparation of food and um being aware of like this grain is going to provide me nourishment let me do this in a loving way so that I can it's called um reciprocity I have a hard time saying that word but it's like where you give back as something is giving to you so Mm. um if you fish like you go through the work of fishing but you also acknowledge that the fish is giving you nourishment and therefore you like appreciate that and it's not just this one-way transactional and one of the quotes for the for the book that really stood out to me was, um, in many ways, foods reflect culture. The stories, taboos, ceremonies, and human interactions that surround food are portholes into a myriad of fascinating ways in which people relate to their diet, to their natural environment, and to each other. Nutrition is secondary to the culturally 
to the culturally contrived manners that people adhere to. Control food production, procurement, when, when to eat certain foods and how to prepare them and what they should or will eat. So I feel like this really talks about how in a lot of different societies, they don't have this nutritional pyramid that we have in Western society. It's more about- Which is like inaccurate anyways that we realized. (laughs) That is so problematic. And if you want us to do an episode about that, leave it in the comments and we will definitely like, like get more into like the capitalist, like- consumerism like mindset of like this quote-unquote nutrition diet like with the food pyramids we saw and how that's changing depending on the different industries and etc but I won't go on that tangent but when you think about food in this context of culture you don't think pyramid you think experience you think Mm -hmm. you know you think giving back you think of this love that you have for the nature and the environment that is giving you this nourishment, but also the love of like sharing this nourishment with people around you. And I think it's important for me to point out as I kind of wrap up this talk of food justice is that food justice is more than just claiming one diet or shaming others into eating quote unquote more ethically. It's about the battle to eradicate food deserts, provide everyone with food access, respecting and valuing our food when it comes to um, like connecting to the uni- universe and respecting and valuing where it comes from at a large, it also surpasses the individual level and recognizes that the business first capitalist ideology in which our society thrives on is just as responsible for the state in which the world is in ethically. Sure, we as individuals can do what we can, but we must first look at the system to change as well, because if we don't change the system, what we do on an individual and collective matter won't have such a great, won't have the great impact that it can if we were to look at the system directly. Yeah, I I appreciate this conversation, Ricky, and bringing it into ecofeminism because it's like, that's why systemic change is so important. And looking at just the various aspects of like, if we connect ecofeminism and, and to some extent, food justice also connect to, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but um, sustainability and ethical practices, and then also like uh, environmental and climate change and like, like almost like environmental decline, we could say in a way. And it's so important to kind of break outside of these narratives in order for systemic change to actually make the differences. Yes, individual and like small community level collective change is important, but that systemic change is really essential. And I also, when you were talking about food justice, I thought about, um, you know, there's movements that it's definitely not new, but there's kind of like resurgence interest in um, also thinking about like all of the migrant workers that go into literally picking food and Mm -hmm. the kind of problematic uh, farm industry that we have, farming industry that we have in, at least in North America and thinking about, um, actually, I'm going to take that back. It's globally, because I'm thinking about all of the things that I've read and studied about um, like with imports and exports on food and how we really don't realize living Mm -hmm. in a first world, like in quotes, like developed nation. I really don't like these terms like first world or third world or developed or developing. I think they're so problematic, but 
looking at us living in these kind of very privileged states, even people who are in other, you know, not like developing in quotes countries and in privileged positions are able to have access to foods that maybe are being made in their other countries that the lower working class don't have access to, first of mm-hmm. all. And then looking at who goes into preparing those foods, I'm going to connect this really quickly to the farmers protests that are going on in India right now. Um, especially they were really big in, um, I want to say like a little bit earlier, uh, in 2020 and if I'm sorry, end of 2020, early 2021, but they're definitely still a concern. And, and there's a whole movement, um, from the farmers because it's, it's a lot, we'll, we'll go into it. We post about it a little bit on gray matters as well. And we can definitely break that down. If there's interest in that, we can break down some of like the farm work and agricultural movements that have happened globally in the United States as well. Um, and why it's so important to think about the livelihood and the state of the farmers, because remember at the end of the day, we have corporations, but if we don't have farmers preparing our food, we don't have food. That's, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a big thing. So I think it's something that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love Go that. Ahead. No, no. I was just going to say, yeah, I totally agree. I think that was like one of the biggest topics that we talked about was that even if you went into like a school today, this is, this is funny. Like um, my, my boyfriend's niece was, and she's in, she's in pre-K and they were asking them where food came from. And a lot of them said like McDonald's or Chick-fil-A, mm. like and she was, she was like one of the only ones that said a grocery store, but even like kids, like they, if you ask kids, I feel like you learn so much from kids about mm-hmm. the construction, like the construct of our society. If you ask a kid, where does food come from? They won't tell you a farm. They won't tell you like someone actually picks it. They think you just go in the store and you just, it, I guess they think it magically appears in the store. I don't know. But yeah. I think that 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 goes to show what we as a society values and devalues. Absolutely. That's so true. Um, And then continuing this conversation and kind of connected to this is um, eco-womanism. So eco-womanism is not, I don't think it's fair to think about it as a faction of eco-feminism, but um, to get a little bit more understanding of what womanism is, you can definitely go back and listen to our season one episode where we break down feminist and womanist theories. And we kind of talk about... um, the, the differences and the similarities and kind of why we talk about feminism and eco-womanism, uh, I'm sorry, feminism and womanism separately as two different but related entities. Um, and of course, there's a lot of debate, healthy debate and discussion about how they kind of relate to each other, if they do, if they're factions, whatever. But um, for the sake of discussion, I believe Ricky and I both look at um, womanism as uh, not a faction of feminism. Mm-hmm. So continuing that, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about eco-womanism and ethical practices. So Melanie L. Harris wrote a book about this, and we will also, like Ricky said, link to her book in um, the resources page. Her book is called Eco-Womanism, African-American Women and Earth-Honoring Faiths. So um, discussing eco-womanism, she explains that eco-womanism highlights the necessity for race, class, gender, intersectional analysis when examining the logic of domination and unjust public policies that result in environmental health disparities that historically disadvantage communities of color. And as, as an aspect of third wave as an aspect of third wave womanist religious thought, eco-womanism is also shaped by religious worldviews reflective of African cosmologies and upholds a moral imperative for earth justice. Um, noting the significance of African and Native American cosmologies that link the divine, human and nature realms into an interconnected web of life, eco-womanism takes into account the religious practices and spiritual beliefs that are an important 
tenets and points of inspiration for eco-womanist activism. So this relates a lot. I believe eco-womanism and womanism to a large extent relate a lot to um, kind of like the spiritual element as well. Um, and this interconnectedness to spirituality in our, in our practices. Um, and I believe it's important to, to discuss this because of the, the kind of a whole different holistic approach that eco-womanism has and a lot of the work that's being done, especially in disadvantaged communities um, and among disadvantaged populations and in, in nations is, um, is okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I paused because I don't want to say like nations are disadvantaged per se. That feels, that feels a little, uh, essentializing and problematic, but disadvantaged communities and populations within nations. I'll say that. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's important to think about because a lot of indigenous practices and like African practices on the African subcontinent are rooted in this kind of spiritual element. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that. And also this acknowledges further the impact that, that race, class, gender impact of um, Western kind of industrialization. Um, and so moving away from that consumerist neoliberal culture is associated with various aspects and forms of eco-feminism and eco-womanist eco practices. So it connects to this understanding of sustainability and the large-scale negative environmental impact from corporations. So again, going back to that systemic um, understanding of, of needing to, or that understanding of really needing to um, change things systemically. And that starts from the corporations and um, this also connects to the responsibility of corporations um, and the responsibility that they have to environmental change and to, um, at this point, it's not, it's not avoiding, it's literally about stopping and then reversing um, environmental impacts and the damage of environmental destruction and climate change. Um, so I have an example of someone who I, I also took an eco-feminism class um, at in the program, the Multicultural Women and Gender Studies program that Ricky and I both talk about at Texas Women's University. And there was a really kind of inspirational uh, example of praxis, which is theory in action um, by Wangari Matai. And I'm, I'm probably also saying her name wrong, so I apologize, but she is a Kenyan or she was a Kenyan activist and the first African woman to win a Nobel Peace Prize. So what Matai is really known for is um, particularly in connecting her methods of activism and her work largely engaged with eco-womanism. And she had many positive impacts throughout the African continent um, and particularly in East and Central Africa and in her native Kenya. So she worked with and not against indigenous practices and empowered the people to save their own communities from environmental change, often brought on by climate change and exacerbated by imperialism um, and imperialist fueled global industrialization, which as we know, there's a lot of kind of attention on um, post-colonial nations and certain um, nations that are largely non-European nations and their impact on the environment. But I think it's really important when we have those conversations to also acknowledge that they're kind of catching up. And so a lot of the impact that they're having on the environment is exacerbated partially because of modern technology and modern advancement in industrialization, but also that this is just a byproduct and a result of industrialization that happened in Western and European nations. Um, hundred to 200 years ago. So it's kind of like they're catching up, but also there's more destruction and environmental change and climate change because of what has happened already from Western nations um, and a kind of like necessity to keep up with the global economy. So this is all very rooted in like the economy and how we're, it's not just about 
growing a community garden, unfortunately is not going to save it. Just recycling mm-hmm. plastic is not going to save it. I actually read this whole thing this morning. Um, I forget in which journal it was like a science journal about the impact of, of recycling plastic and how that's basically something that was promoted by the oil companies in the 1970s, largely. And then, um, kind of like really promoted this household use of like, if we grew up in the 1990s, you'll remember like the recycle reuse kind of motto that we were really taught in schools, which is great. It's very important to do all those things. But, um, again, our, our, uh, individual and collective community level work is, it can only be partially mitigated you know, can only partially mitigate some of the environmental destruction and change that's happening. That really needs to happen on a global systemic level from these large corporations that are like contributing to so much of this, of this decline in the climate. So, um, okay. I went off on a little bit of a tangent, but back to, um, Matai. So she, um, so she was like a social activist, political activist, but she really is, you know, all connected to this. That's why it's, we talk about her in the like context of eco-feminism because all of this was kind of connected in her work. And so, um, she is really well known for the green belt movement, which increased forestry in devastated areas. And then later she also advocated, um, another word I'm going to probably say a little incorrectly. I'm really trying here with my words, but I also am acknowledging that, you know, if I say something incorrectly, I'm going to, you know, I'm trying to, to say it correctly. I want to make sure I, I at least try to do some justice to it. So it's, um, Mutaini, Mutainai, a Buddhist origin waste reduction philosophy. So that was, she was really working towards getting African communities um, to, to really reduce waste and to kind of not necessarily revert back to indigenous practices, but work with indigenous practices that were already, um, that had, you know, had been in place for hundreds of years and try to um, like, work and, and be a part of globalization and be a part of, um, like, uh, progressing their communities and their nations, but also doing it in a way that is like what Ricky was saying earlier with like the holistic practices and doing it in a way that you're giving back. Um, you're not just taking from the earth and just being consumers that we're actively giving back and kind of existing on the earth as, um, a part of a system, not, not just a consumer. So she's really interesting to look into. She also has a really cool book called Replenishing the Earth. It's a great read. Um, And we will link to that on our resources page as well. So we have a lot of really interesting reads um, this episode, which we do with a lot of episodes, but we will have that linked on our resources page. Many of these books will also be available on our bookshop.org link. So um, make sure to check that out as well. We'll have a little blurb about bookshop as well. So you'll get more information when you go on our resources page, that'll break it down a little bit more as well. But we basically are affiliating with them and have a recommended book list. And every time you basically purchase through our book list, through bookshop.org, you are um, supporting us at Gray Matters and you're also supporting your local bookstore. So it's 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 a great way to kind of um, give back in, in a few different ways. And um, it's also a, a little bit of a um, middle finger to the big corporations. So we support that, right? Y- yes, yes. We are all about like, yes, we are all about that because I, I think that what, what happens what has happened in society and we will continue this conversation um, in our next week episode as we talk more about veganism Um, I am excited about this episode because just a quick little tease I am starting kind of like this more plant-based journey but it's nothing the the foundation of my journey which you'll learn about next episode is very it's very much not rooted in 
the mainstream trendy conversations um, as as we will talk about a lot of the mainstream trendy conversations reflect back on this um, Eurocentric patriarchal capitalist notion that it's the individual who has to change society rather than it's the systemic like the systemic issues within the society itself. And I'm so glad you brought that up, Charmaine, in your tangent, because I think that that will be a foundational kind of like theme and point as we talk more and have more conversations related to um, ecofeminism, food justice, ecological like insights and, and topics. Um, I think that we will continue to have those conversations and just remind ourselves and also remind our community that we are discuss like we can only do what we can individually and collectively, but it is the systemic capitalist mindset that we are really fighting against and that we really need to bring more attention to. It's like we said, it's a business first model. Um, but as Charmaine said, all of our resources are on our website. We will list the books. We will list to, we will also list to our affiliated links. If you need to purchase any of these books, we really highly recommend checking out bookshop. Um, and as always, um, stay tuned for next week's episode and we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your support. You can continue to show your support by giving the podcast five stars and by following us on our website, graymatterstheblog.com. That's gray with an A and on Instagram, as well as sharing and commenting on our posts on at graymatterstheblog. We want to connect with our Gray Matters community. That's you, our listeners. So if you have a comment or inquiry about customizable trainings and workshops, email us at graymatterstheblog at gmail.com. Stay safe, everyone, and we will chat with you next week.